Uh, hang on a second, Malcolm X. We're talking history, right? I mean, Columbus did know the world was round. He did know America was there. Bullshit. He was sailing for Asia because he thought the walls made out of gold, okay? He ran into America and called us Indians because he thought it was in India. And where was his last? Well, that's how you find new and interesting stuff. At least the Spaniard was brave. Shit, yeah, he was brave. <laughs> Did I ain't getting in a motherfucking boat? By the way, he was Italian, you dumb dumb. Wait, so you say discovering half the known world is sort of a personal realization? Exactly. Personal realization. Well, like saying rock and roll didn't exist before I heard my first record. Right. You see, Columbus wants to sit back, makes Cheerios with Cocoa Puffs, maybe put a little bit of sugar on it. That's fine with me. I'll even have a beer with it. But don't let the kids out of school thinking that he discovered some shit. You know you're right. Fuck Columbus. Let's get together. I'll say it first. We all love fun. And it's time for Kill McCast. Yeah, it's time for Kill McCast. Welcome to Kilmercast. Here is your host, Francis Rizzo III. Thanks, Bernard. Welcome to all the Val Pals out there listening to a new episode of KilmerCast. I'm your host, Francis Rizzo III, and I'm here to talk about the films of Val Kilmer, one of the most truly riveting American film actors of the modern era. On this episode, we'll be checking out Kilmer's role as a thief on his last big score in the 2008 crime thriller Columbus Day. Joining us to chat about the film and Kilmer's role in it is the second member of the KilmerCast Three Timers Club and the mind behind the DTV connoisseur, it's Matt Poirier. Welcome back, Matt. How, I hope all is well with you. Thank you, Frank. I, I didn't realize I was, I was part of the um, the, 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 um, the Three Timers Club. That's awesome. That's a, a, a very exclusive club. That's awesome. <laughs> I, 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 I feel honored. That's, that's fantastic. You have to get your robe. But it's, a, it's a nice uh, little perk of the, uh, the club. <laughs> it reminds me of that SNL sketch when I, I think it was when Tom Hanks was on, the Five Timers Club with like yep. Steve Martin and everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think my show is going to run long enough to have, have many members, but <laughs> <laughs> you never know. It's a, a lot of people. You start these these podcasts, and the next thing you know, it's been ten years, and you've been, you know, it, it, you'd be surprised. <laughs> we have to see if Kilmer keeps making movies, then we can <laughs> keep doing episodes. Exactly. <laughs> so this is an early morning Kilmer cast. Usually, I do these things a little later in the day, or perhaps at night. Um, so before the show, I just grabbed a banana. You know, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm going to get going. What's your go-to breakfast? coffee um that's that's really yeah i i but i will say my um I, I work, i've been working from home since like 2013 so i do it all the time um i tend to do i mean i, I will do sometimes like cereal or something for breakfast but a lot of times mm -hmm. i'll do like a like a 9 30 in the morning like leftovers from the day before mm -hmm. um, or 10 o'clock in the morning leftovers. so it might be like something like fried rice that i made or a burrito or something like that and like not a breakfast burrito either um so that that's sometimes my <laughs> i do that sometimes now, is there anything you won't eat as a leftover early in the morning? Boy, that's a great question. I, I don't know if there is actually, if there's I something that's like. For me, I'd say fish. I couldn't do fish early okay. in the morning. Yeah. No, no. See, see I've done it because, um, yeah, like a lot of times you get like, like, especially in New England, you get like the fried fish, mm -hmm. like dinners. And if there's like leftovers, yeah, I'll heat those up and, and in the morning so yeah but but yeah i don't know if i could do like a like a salmon filet in early in the morning so yeah that seems like it might be a bit much <laughs> for me like you know i'm i'm somebody i i'm not a creature of habit i really i get bored eating the same thing over and over again yeah. so you know I, i'm addicted to mcdonald's breakfast i mean i just you know the sausage biscuit if you get it right you know sometimes i find there's a big variety between stores and when they are made if you get them too early because i get to work very early in the morning um 
you know, they're not, they're too dry. Uh, it's like they've been almost left out. Sometimes you get them, they're super moist. Uh, that's probably my go-to is the sausage biscuit at McDonald's, even though for oddly, I don't like McDonald's for the most part. It's just that, that, that is the one breakfast food of the fast foods that I really just, I, I crave that food that, that tastes really good. <laughs> yeah, I actually, so, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, I went with my brother to see a Patriots game um, in New England and we got down there really early and there's a McDonald's near there. And um, I got the pancakes for the first time and I don't know how long. And um, hmm. the pancakes are interesting because they're just kind of like bread with sugar. That's kind of how they taste, <laughs> which isn't horrible, um, you know, but um, yeah. So I had that and like the, the hash browns as well. I also really love those. And yeah, and the, the, the sandwiches. So yeah, I hadn't had a McDonald's breakfast in a while. Um, so that was kind of a nice indulgence. <laughs> See, the hash browns at McDonald's, I feel, are a little too soggy for my flavor. Uh, I find the Burger King ones tend to be a little crispier. Yeah. Um, you know, you kind of have to put together like an all-star team of breakfast. You have to like go to, you know, McDonald's for the biscuit. You got to go to Burger King. And then you feel like a weirdo going to a bunch of different places on one trip. <laughs> But it's true. It, it is funny how that is with the fast food places. Like they all seem to have one thing that they really do well. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So last night I got the COVID booster and my flu shot, and thankfully uh, I'm feeling really good this morning. Uh, so I'm very happy about that, except for my some real soreness in my arm. I didn't know what to expect with getting two vaccines at the same time. I'm like, I said to the uh, pharmacist, I said, uh, I don't think I've ever gotten two vaccines at the same time. She said, Well, when you're a kid, you got like three of them at the same time, so like it's nothing to worry about. That's a good point. Yeah, I still have got to get my flu shot. Um, I don't, I think I'm not due for my booster. I don't think for a, another couple months, but um. Hmm. But I do, I, I've got it. Yeah. I mean, that was interesting last year. I mean, I, and I don't know this year if I'm going to be in any kind of like, you know, danger of the flu. Cause I'm going to be wearing a mask probably all the time, mm -hmm. but I, I definitely, yeah. So I, I think the, um, the right aid near us does flu shots, um, you know, they're covered by insurance or whatever. So I think one of the times I'm picking up something, I just need to go out back there and just have them, you know, Stick give me the jab right <laughs> yeah i was like oh two shots in the same moment what's it gonna do to me is it gonna like kill my arm and i admit i'm a bit sore this morning for sure but you know thankfully i had no reaction to the first two covid shots and so far as of whatever time this is now nothing yet so i'm hoping third time's the charm as well and I, i'll be fine and, and good to go for the rest of this whatever we are dealing with here Right. Yeah, I had the Pfizer and I had no pretty much no I, I the first one actually I had more of a reaction to the first one than the second one, but it also might have been the fact that I had barely been out of the apartment when mm -hmm. I got the first one. So maybe my I just was like disoriented and not used to actually being out of the apartment. And so that might have been more contributing than the fact that I uh, um, was getting the shot. I don't know. Yeah, my wife had a, a pretty strong reaction to the first shot. Uh, thankfully, a little better on the second shot. Um, but she has immune compromise issues. So that, you know, it's to be expected with that. That's why for her, actually, they told her she shouldn't get the COVID and the flu shot at the same time, which uh, I, I thought, you know, they were telling people, but apparently if you have immune issues, you shouldn't do that, which, you know, it makes it take a little longer to get done, unfortunately. But I guess, you, you know, as long as they're both done in reasonable time, you're good to go. Yeah, well, that's good to know, because my my office is in a similar situation. I know when she when she got the um the COVID, she got the um the Johnson and Johnson, and um she they they at, at CVS they had her wait a little bit longer. Like it's usually fifteen. She they had mm -hmm. her wait a half hour. Um, so we were just kind of sitting in CVS and <laughs> in, in, in Philly here. But um, but yeah, so probably the same situation for her. Like if uh if she's you know if she just get the flu shot this year, um yeah, not at the same time. 
Yeah, it was funny because uh, when I got my first two shots, I went to one of those mass vaccination things they do in New York where it was run by the military and, yeah. you know, everything was super smooth. You walk in, walk it through. And then like, they're like, well, go sit for 15 minutes and then you can go. And, you know, nobody's watching you. You can just get up and leave whenever you wanted to. I, I waited the 15 minutes. I, I didn't want to have anything happen to me or my wife. We both went at the same time. This time, you know, I went to Target and I sat there and they're like, you know, I said, they gave me the shots and they said, I said, uh, they like, if you have to wait 15 minutes, I said, well, can I just walk around the store and, uh, you know, shop while I wait? And they're like, no, you have to sit there for 15 minutes and we're going to hold on to your, your, uh, your vaccination card until your time is up. I was like, oh, well, they're taking this a lot more seriously than what happened the first time. Yeah, same thing for me. We did um the, the convention center here was a FEMA vaccination site. And so, yeah, I mean, the military precision, precision which which they move me like through, it's just like point here, point there. There you go. Get the jab. And then, yeah, wait. And um yeah, when I got my second one, I definitely waited the 15 because I was kind of more like it's almost like the celebration of getting the second one. that I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to sit it out here. Um, But yeah, when we went to CVS, it was kind of the same thing. And actually, there was this this kind of this, this jerk that was getting his his COVID shot at the same time as my wife was at the CVS. And he was complaining about having to wait he's like you can't make me wait here you can't make me sit you can't make, you know and and um it was just really obnoxious and i think they did like say like, okay here's your car at 10 minutes they just said go take your card get out of here you know and i think they were excited that my wife was not giving them a hard time so it seems like maybe that that cvs had gotten its share of of people giving them a hard time so they were just excited that my wife was just happy to just sit there and um but the other thing too is because the cvs is so small she mm. could go a little bit um because it, they could keep an eye on where she was. I think with the target, it's like you could be uh, anywhere in the target. And so with the CVS, it was like they're, they're right in the general vicinity, she could do some shopping. But yeah, I guess it'd be a bad, uh, bad look if there was like a guy passed out in the uh, the cookware section. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. yeah, those target workers have enough to deal with, right? There's nothing there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Matt, I was wondering, were you a toy kid? Mm. Yeah. So, so the earliest toy I remember was um you know I, I i you know i was born in 79 so the earliest toys would be like the return of the jedi mm -hmm. um star wars my parents got those for me and then quickly switched over to he-man um and so he-man the big thing i just remember i mean anytime i had like a, a an ailment like an ear infection or something like that and we go to the the, the drugstore to get whatever medication my mom would get me a he-man figure and i also remember going to like toys r us and just seeing like the big you know thing and um, yeah, I, that was that was a big one. I did move on to like the Ninja Turtles as well. Um, that was kind of like towards the end of my my act, you know, my my toys action figure phase was probably that would have been like fifth or sixth grade. And so probably by then, um, once I moved on from there um, and I did have friends who like went further, like they like when the, the new Star Wars were released, um, they they got those. And I was like, oh, maybe I should try that. And I, I couldn't do it. I, I, I was when I was in high school, it was like I bought them and I was just like. I, what am I doing with with two Star Wars action figures right now? Um, so 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 after a certain point, I couldn't do it, even though my friends still did it. But yes, as a kid, I you know I had like the big sets, and I would just yeah you know use the ball, collect them all. Yeah, I I definitely had two phases of my toy 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 phase. I guess you call it is you know me as a child. You know I, I like I said, like you said, He Man, uh, GI Joe, tons of GI Joes. Uh, you know uh, Mask was one of my favorites. Mask. Uh, you know um 
God, there's so many. The Mysterions. I, I had all these like weird little figures that like you get at like um, what was called Woolworths in New York. I don't know if you had Woolworths up uh, <laughs> by you. Um, and they're like little die cast army men. And it's like I, I had so many toys. I don't know. I was spoiled. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the way I look at it. And then, you know, like you, you get into your teenage and like, oh, toys are not my, for me. And then now as an adult, oh, I got to get toys again. <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess now it's because now as an adult, you have disposable income and you can buy the things you like. Uh, so, you know, I, I definitely have uh, an upsetting amount of toys in my house for a uh, 40 something year old man. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about um, Val Kilmer and I was like thinking back, I was like, probably not a guy who has a lot of action figures of him and then i was like well yeah obviously there's one big one and that's batman right. you know they, they made several batman forever figures of him and did not look very good <laughs> not a very good likeness back then in the 90s uh but then more recently they did some new ones which are stunning they look exactly like him although i am not willing to put up the cash to buy these action figures uh i mean i don't need a, a full-size you know like <laughs> batman in my in my house <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. We talk about like that kind of like that sort of the grown up thing where it's like um you kind of like to have them kind of on display or just like the way they look when they're they're kind of sitting there. And uh, yeah, I think one of the things actually for me um beyond uh, like those toys is, yeah, like I definitely like bobbleheads for me. I, I'm, mm. I'm always enjoying getting, you know, going to baseball games or and getting them. But but yeah, I think for me, like when adults have toys that like are displayed. Like that's always something like I think for me now as an adult, I, and I also have a thing about collecting things. I always I'm always impressed when people collect things. So like so like you talk about with that Val Kilmer one, like somebody had like a really great Batman collection and they had that in there. I would just think that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Do you uh, have any Funko Pops? No, I, I've been meaning to get some because there's a, a place in Chinatown near us that has a good selection of them. And so, um, yeah, because I know that they, they do make some of the baseball players and some of the old comic book characters that I still, uh, you know, uh, you know, liked when I was when I was younger that I, I still get a kick out of. Yeah, my wife bought me uh, this one. I'm putting it on on the screen for it's a uh, oh. you know, <laughs> Doc Holiday from uh, Tombstone. It's the only Val Kilmer figure I own. Um, and, uh, you know, I love. I really, I should say I loved Funko Pops when they first came out and I bought a ton of them. I, I mean, I have three shelves in my office of just Funko Pops. Uh, there became a point where I was like, I have all the characters I enjoy. I don't need any additional ones of these. Although I really would love to get some more of Val Kilmer ones because like, I would love to have a Chris Knight from Real Genius. That would be the holy grail for me of, of uh, Funko Pops. Um, um I, I would I can't even although I can't even think of any many others I mean I guess I don't think I'd want a Batman I'd love one from Dr. Moreau that'd be a great <laughs> bizarre looking Funko Pop um is there a character that you're a fan of that you'd want a Funko Pop of well if, if it's Val Kilmer um I I would love like a, a when he was John Holmes and uh um, like that that one from <laughs> Wonderland that because that's I, I just the way he played that character um and just to like have that sitting on my kind of on my desk area where I've got bobbleheads and stuff would just be a, a fantastic and what about non-Kilmer any anybody any dream character you'd have as a like because I love the fact that they're so like inexpensive and small and they just have a, a nice little way of representing your fandom yeah yeah for sure Wait, what would be a good one I'm trying to think of like a yeah like a non- uh, a non-Kilmer, like a, in a movie character. Um, movie, you know, TV, comics, anything? I bet they probably have this, too. I would love, like, a you know, Bogart in, in Casablanca. I, yeah. I, I think they probably already even have that one. I don't think they do. I don't think uh, they've done that. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, I, I just, uh, Cagney um, in uh, 
um, the public enemy. Um, mm. If they had that, that, like, you know, with the hat and like the, the maybe the double breasted suit, you know, yeah, that'd be cool. That would be, yeah. So those, those kinds of things I think would be great. Maybe, you know, a, a big fan of Kurosawa films. I would love, uh, you know, Yojimbo. They must, I, bet, I feel like they must have a Yojimbo one. Though. I don't believe they do. I don't think they've gotten much into classic film. They've done classic directors. Like they have a help for Hitchcock, but not oh. the film so much. Yeah, those those would be some some cool ones for me. Um, yeah, I think those would be kind of fun ones. Uh, I, I, beyond that, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think if there's, you know, th- those are probably the big ones. Any kind of movies that, yeah, those kind of old movies that I really like. Very cool. So before we dive into today's film, let's go back in time. Gather round as we put Kilmer in context. So Columbus Day was first released in Poland and other countries on April 28, 2008, and then eventually wound its way to America almost a year later. Uh, but we're going to go with the April 2008 date. Uh, there was a raid on the YFZ Ranch in Texas, which was owned by the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Do you remember this? I you do. do. Because it, there was a lot of stories about um, young girls who had escaped yes. that ranch. And so, so I, what was the guy's name? Jeffords? Was that? Yes, exactly. Jeffords. Yeah. So I, I do remember that happening. Yeah, I, as I was reading up on the story, I was stunned because I didn't have a good memory of this. I, I felt like it should, you know, everybody remembers Waco and, you know, all, and those, um, you know, cults. Um, and but this one, I was stunned that I couldn't remember this. I maybe just didn't get play where I was. Um, authorities took 401 children and three, 133 women into state custody on allegations of sexual abuse, grooming and underage marriages. But then the story got super complicated because there was accusations of government overreach and judges doing more than they were supposed to. Um, there were complaints about the treatment of the children who were removed from the ranch. They were being kept at a military facility. It's a really crazy story. And um, it's well worth reading up on because it's, it's so uh, widespread. Like there's so many different factors of it, but the crazy aspect of it is that it was all kicked off by a woman who called police claiming to be a young girl at the ranch, but she was actually known to police for making a hoax phone calls. But in this case, it actually revealed everything happening at this ranch, which is so weird. And it led to a number of men being put in prison. I didn't know that part of it. I also didn't know what the, the government. So, so I just kind of know about like the raid part. Mm-hmm. And then um, they talked with girls. You know, I think there were women at this point. They, they, they were younger. They were younger at the time. But then, you know, were, were, were adults later. I think even Dr. Phil did a thing on it at the time, if I remember right. I think I, I kind of partook in a little bit more Dr. Phil back then than I probably would like to admit. Um, <laughs> but, um, I think he did a thing with some of the victims as well. Yeah, it's a wild story. And I definitely recommend anybody interested in, you know, cults and churches and stuff like that. Definitely read up because it, it's going to give you a, a couple of nights worth of reading to, to enjoy. Well, I mean, enjoy. It's really har- some horrible stuff in there as well. Uh, but it's a very fascinating story. Uh, also at that time, the uh, it was the Olympic torch relay that was leading up to the Summer Olympics in Beijing. <laughs> Unfortunately, this torch relay hit a lot of snags along the way. There was uh, an anti-China protester who grabbed the torch in London. Then the torch got extinguished by protesters in Paris. And then the torch actually disappeared for a moment in uh, San Francisco and had to be rerouted through a warehouse just to get it away from protesters. Apparently the China protest, which again, I don't remember a lot about that at the time and it's funny because we are coming up on the next olympics the winter olympics which are in beijing again so i wonder if we'll see more of uh these protests again yeah yeah i remember it so i remember the paris one i remember the the, the, the torch i don't remember i didn't remember the san francisco piece but i do remember it being extinguished in paris and um yeah i know like um you know that that's always a controversy i mean i um recently the nba was playing you know games in china and uh 
one of the, I think it was the general manager of the Rockets had came out mm, and yep. uh, what China was doing in Hong Kong. And, you know, China was like trying to pull every, you know, everything out of there and they were fines. And yeah, I think it's a, that thing, you know, the world doesn't know what to do uh, with the, you know, the Chinese regime there because there's, you know, over a billion people that have this burgeoning middle-class population with a lot of money to spend. And so every country wants to get their companies in there to yeah. make that money. But by the same token, a lot of the civil rights abuses, um, uh, it's, you know, that, that these countries, you know, a lot of the Western countries have to face about that. Yeah, it's definitely a, a sticky situation for anybody who wants to be involved economically, but also wants to have ethical involvement, which, you know, when you're dealing with a uh, monolith like, like China, it's difficult to, to separate the two. Yeah, I mean, so just to, from a personal level, I, I work in um, the, the online uh, English as a second language field, um, and that's why mm -hmm. I, I've been. So I work with, actually with with company with a, a company that teaches uh, adult students. So it's so it's not as impacted. But recently, China had a regulation because like the the field for teaching children in China online just has boomed in like the past five years or so, and China just decided that's it, no more. So they just mm -hmm. said no more foreign teachers living abroad can teach children English in, uh, online in China and just completely overnight, just completely wow. destroyed, decimated the industry. And that's what it is when you're working with China. It's just, you know, you just never know. And so on our end, it's just like, we just got floods with that, you know, flooded with applications of teachers that want to teach online, you know, uh, you know, on our platform. But uh, yeah, just, it just a sudden thing. And, and that's like, not even from a civil rights standpoint, it's just, just like, boom, suddenly, you know, I mean, you know, I, I'm, you know, thousands of, you know, teachers here in the United States make their living doing those online classes. It kind of just fits in with their lives and stuff. And then just suddenly you find out one day, you know, China's, you know, and, and like they're kind of letting some companies finish out their contracts with the, with, with parents, um, mm -hmm. you know, with the kids. But you just, again, you just never know if one day China just says, you know what, it's, it's October 1st or it's November 1st. That's it. Even the ones you have left over, you can't do those anymore. Yeah. I mean, they recently instituted a new rule where children can't play video games more than a certain amount of time. <laughs> I, I mean, the way they can institute rules there, it, it makes it difficult to plan ahead. That's for sure. Cause it's on a whim almost. It feels like. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely. I mean, we, we used to, cause we used to have some of our, we have some of our staff there in China. And I remember we would, you know, we do Skype meetings and it's just like, Oh, the, the VPN's not working today. So mm. those people can't attend the meeting. Um, yeah. You just, you just never know uh, with that kind of thing. Well, uh, talking about uh, business, uh, Delta Airlines took over Northwest Airlines at this time, forming the biggest air carrier in the world. And I think there's another one coming, uh, or at least in the planning stages, where JetBlue, I think, is going to merge with another company soon. So we're going to have a lot of options when it comes to flying, although, I mean, I'm not planning on going anywhere anytime soon, so... <laughs> yeah, no, I when so when I went to uh, to New England to see the the, the Patriots game um, with my brother, I was getting a flight from JetBlue. I was going on a Saturday and coming back on a Monday, mm -hmm. and the Saturday one was canceled. They just and, and they just automatically rebooked me for the, the Sunday morning, hmm. and um, so I'd planned to do some stuff with my family and stuff on that Saturday, and so it was just like I just flew to Logan. My brother picked me up on the way, and we went right to the game from there. But just that you know, and I, I called Expedia about it, and I found out from Expedia that even though they offer flights from all the, the you know most of the major carriers, mm -hmm. if you book with one originally, you can't get a new flight with another carrier because mm -hmm. they've already given your money to that first carrier. Mm -hmm. So you can only just get what they have for available. You can't, I guess they they can't take the money away from that carrier once they've yeah, given. Yeah, you're it. locked in, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I was stuck, but yeah, it is kind of a scary thing. Um, the idea that, you know, I think that's kind of what it's, what's happening with everything. And, you know, we, we talk about with movies where Disney's sort of, you know, taking over everything, you know, it's just like, it's, everything's being consolidated and we're kind of, it seems like, you know, we need another Teddy Roosevelt or something. I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, definitely is a little disturbing because you know it's funny. I was reading the other day about um some uh, it was a movie a remake of a movie coming and um you know the, the usual argument when people get upset about remakes is well it's not getting rid of the original but the problem is nowadays it can get rid of the original because all you can get on a lot of these things is streaming they don't even release physical versions of them anymore and i mean fox doesn't even put their movies in repertory theaters anymore so you can't even watch them that way so if uh if they decide that the remake is the version they want you to watch that might be the only version you can watch and so you know these limited amount of choices is really getting scary when especially as we move more and more digital to more and more digital item the control is so you know finite that uh you can't get what the things you want anymore yeah well that's like a big thing with disney when they took over fox because fox used to you know um allow a lot of their films to be screened in small indie theaters and so it'd be like you know a, a small indie theater might do say anything on a special night and that gets like extra people into their theater and they say hey you know it's actually a really nice place to watch a movie i'll see some new movies there mm -hmm. and disney has you know they their prop um they're they've always just vaulted their movies they don't just allow them to be screened and independently or anything like that and so they were doing the same thing and they're you know part of it i think is their their goal is to kind of choke out those small indie theaters which i don't know how well that's going to help them with the big theaters going out of business as well but yeah. um you know but yeah so it's like you're right like if you know if they remade casablanca and you know or whatever i'm trying to think of one that was a fox one that you know disney now has the rights to yeah you're right they could they could make it so that the the new version is the one and you you'd have it'd be almost impossible to get your unless you you you're somebody who owned a physical copy of the original one before um yeah they they could you know make it hard to to get the, the old one yeah, absolutely that's why i have a very large physical media collection in my <laughs> house uh because i don't want to not be able to watch something i've i've purchased films where i'm like will i watch it maybe and at that point yeah if i maybe want to watch it i better hold on to it <laughs> Yeah, well, because it's like you know, interesting, like like with the the Irishman that you know came out on on Netflix. It's like you know you think of Scorsese as a, as a great director, where there's some you know really big fans of his, where people just want to have every Scorsese movie. But you can't have this, the Irishman. You you can't you know until unless Netflix decides to release it on DVD. The only way you can have the Irishman is if you pay whatever it is thirteen dollars a month in perpetuity to Netflix. And I'm not saying the Irishman has like a real great rewatchability factor, but, but it's that idea that, you know, that this is, you know, one of our, one of the greatest directors of the last, you know, 30, 40 years um, in, in Scorsese, he has a movie that can, you know, same thing with Spike Lee with, with the five bloods, it's the same thing. You know, one, one of kind of our, you know, great heritage directors who's, who's done some of the great movies of, of recent, you know, the last, um, you know, half of the 20th century or, or more, they've got movies that you can't, just have you can't just own them you have to you're you're kind of locked into netflix if you want to see them yeah well thanks to settle your mind on at least the irishman i believe criterion has released an irishman blu-ray uh i think they have some sort of deal with netflix to release their high profile stuff because they, they did do roma um and i believe they did the irishman i uh, could be wrong about that um but you're absolutely right that these streaming movies and you know we're finding more and more is that streaming movies are very like uh here and there and gone uh people watch it once and then it goes away and nobody talks about you know streaming movies don't have the impact that a theater a theatrical release have um you know you need to <laughs> i don't know if it's the promotion that goes with the theatrical release or the idea that it people saw posters out in the real world that makes that connection they saw ads on tv and and make that connection because streaming movies are very ephemeral they just they they come and go and i i mean you can see it with even the biggest hits. Nobody talks about them much 
right after they're released. It's when they're released, yes, let's watch it, binge it, and all that, and then forget about it and move on to the next thing. Yeah, it seems like the the Netflix model for all of this stuff is to just burn through it, you know. So mm-hmm. get this movie out, you know, get the buzz around it, get people either subscribing or like staying subscribed so they can be a part of the Twitter buzz that's around it, and then just pull out the next thing. Um, I know with TV shows, they generally don't do more than like three seasons of a TV show. It's just you know, get it out there, get the buzz, and then move on to the next one. And, you know, they say that that's actually a positive thing because I think of shows like Alice or Happy Days that lasted probably a lot longer than they they should have <laughs> because they wanted to get into rerun syndication. But it is like kind of a, a, a mind – it's almost like a disposable um, – it, it's almost like a, a kind of a disposable approach to, to mm-hmm. modern entertainment that it's just like you just kind of use it and get rid of it and get the next one, you know. And, and you know, I think for a lot of us that grew up, you know, we kind of grew up in that last age where things lasted forever. You know, in the 80s, we had things that existed in the 70s and 60s that, you know, just, you know, whereas nowadays, yeah, if you have something from the 90s, that's shocking, um, you know, um, especially any kind of like appliance or something like that. There's no way um, that you'd have something from even like the 2000s. I think Netflix is kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of doing the same thing where it's just like they just burn through one thing after another. And you're right. Like nobody, I mean, I think of like the, what was it? The, um, the Sandra Bullock one that was like a big deal. was a bird, yeah, bird box. box. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we don't talk about that really at all anymore. And no. at that time it was like everywhere. It was memes and everything. And then it just, what's the next movie? And they're going to move on to Tiger King or whatever the next thing they have. Is. Yeah. You have to wonder if perhaps it's just a, also a side effect of internet culture where we get so focused on something so hard, so fast that we burn out very quickly on it and move on because we can't deal with it anymore. It's just, it's too much of it. Yeah, that's very true. I I can imagine because it's just like, um, yeah, things, it seems like everybody wants to be like in on something because I think they want to kind of get the residuals of like, oh, can I get more Twitter follows from this or more Instagram likes if I'm attached to this? Um, And then, yeah, you're right. Like for people who aren't trying to do that it's like your feed is just covered with whatever it is and yeah at a certain point you're just like i, I don't want to deal with you know whatever it is tiger king or you know i'm, I'm tired of hearing about it and mm-hmm. you just go back to watching you know for my wife and i we just go back to watching the retro channel and you know reruns the <laughs> mod or something like that instead and we're just like forget about uh, that yeah i'm on about my fourth rewatch of happy endings and <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, i'm like only three seasons but it's like 24 episodes a season so i got plenty to watch <laughs> exactly exactly yeah i think that's the thing i think that's maybe what people maybe will start to find with like netflix and those things that like maybe the 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 number of people that need to be in on the biggest thing will start to shrink and the other thing too is i think we we never know just how many people are really like you know like for example with tiger king like i don't know how many people actually were watching that that i knew i just knew everybody was talking about it and everybody was you know everybody needed to talk about it but you know, you never know if like, you know, maybe people watch an episode or two or for, just to see what it was about. And, but you don't want to be the one who's not watching it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, you know, it, it, it is interesting to know like how much with these Netflix things. And we also don't know like their, their streaming statistics and things like that are a little bit sort of, you know, cryptic. Like we don't always know like where they pull those numbers from, how they, you know, how they get them. Um, it just seems to be about for them getting and keeping subscribers and just sort of keeping that, that buzz around, you know, whatever it is that's going to get them subscribers. Yeah, when you have a black box like Netflix where they control all the ratings and know exactly who's watching what, I wonder if someday we'll get a, a expose or a, uh, you know, um, investigation and find out that people really weren't watching these shows. And it was just Netflix saying people were watching these shows, put it in the top 10 and suddenly people pay attention to it. 
Yeah. Well, one of the things somebody brought up um, is one of the, the, the kind of the, the more fungible aspects is, you know, when you watch something and if you don't tell it to not turn on the next thing, mm-hmm. like how much of it turning on that next thing automatically counts for yeah. that. And of course, they're going to use their featured content to be the next thing. So, you know, if you're not watching a TV show, if you're watching a movie and it just immediately starts Bird Box again, well, how much does that count as a Bird Box stream that you, you know, went in the other room to make yourself a coffee or something after the movie was over and it started playing the next movie and you're already 10 minutes in? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also at this time, the uh, United States Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of lethal injection as a form of capital punishment over the Eighth Amendment's cruel and unusual punishment challenge. Uh, you know, this is a sticky subject to talk about for sure. Uh, uh, you know, I think anything, you know, I, I'm not going to tell somebody that they can't hope somebody dies for the crimes they commit if their crime is so heinous, but I definitely uh, see the other side where they're often not sure if people actually did the things that they're accused of and found guilty of. So I, I struggle with that a lot. Excuse me. Yeah, I think, you know, with the was the Innocence Project, where um, mm-hmm. they've been using a lot of DNA to exonerate criminals. I mean, the, the sheer volume of those exonerations, I think, does, you know, I mean, yeah, there's certain cases like, you know, um, you know, Timothy McVeigh, everybody knew he did the crime. I mean, there was yeah. no real doubt there that, you know, that that happened, uh, you know, hun- you know, over 100 people there and, in, in, you know, 100, 150 in Oklahoma City. I mean, that's kind of a real, you, you, you get it, you know what happened there, or maybe like a serial killer where you know that that was who it was. But a lot of times, and like, especially in Texas, where they just execute large numbers of people, um, excuse me, is it, it, it is, you know, a lot of times that, that DNA evidence that we have now can, you know, and and also too, I think you you watch a lot of these crime shows on that are so popular. You know, they kind of, po- you know, kind of point to this sort of like absolute knowledge that the police departments have of like forensics and those kinds of things. When, you know, you don't always know in every case like how well that you know it's being interpreted or you know and that kind of thing. There's always a little bit of, you know, they're, they're not always, but sometimes there is a gray area. And I think you're right. If you don't know for sure, um, yes, it's horrible for somebody to be locked up in jail for 20 years for a crime they didn't commit. But at least they're alive and they yeah. can, you know. <laughs> whereas if if somebody's dead, that's it. There's no going back from from making that mistake. Absolutely. So on that uh, sunny note, <laughs> let's take a look at the top of the Billboard charts at the time. So in the number one spot is an ode to oral sex that we recently saw on the show little wayne's lollipop uh featuring static major as i know the last time we talked about this there's nothing special to this song it's very just you know a simple beat a very monotone uh, delivery from little wayne i just don't get it yeah it's it's interesting with modern hip-hop because you know here in philadelphia you, you a lot of younger people who drive around with their stereos blasting and it's just it's just a lot of this kind of thing where it's the beat sounds the same a lot of auto-tune and it's amazing how if i hear like a hip-hop song from like the 90s or 80s oh, yeah. blasting at somebody's car like immediately like my whole my head starts popping and i'm like listening i'm kind of getting into it sometimes i even know the lyrics and i'm you know but like with these ones it's like it kind of like it grates a little bit and um it is. I, I, I don't know. I think it kind of happens to hip-hop in the late 2000s. Um, and I don't know if I'm sounding like a get-off-my-lawn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, but I agree with you. Yeah, it definitely has become very bland, very uh, homogenous uh, hip-hop. It, it feels like a lot of it all sounds the same. And so when somebody really does something different, like, say, a little Nas X, it really stands out because it's it, everything else is just sonic wallpaper. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the same thing with, with Kanye West when he uh, came out in like the early 2000s, where like 
after Tupac and Biggie passed away, there when they were killed, there was like, you know, kind of hip hop was there a lot of acts that were kind of on the, you know, sort of the lower level who did kind of more all kind of the same thing. And it was kind of all, you know, like I have more money than you. I get more women than you. You know, you're mm-hmm. jealous of me. That kind of hip hop just kind of, you know, it was pervasive and there really wasn't anything else new. And suddenly Kanye West comes out and everybody was just like, oh, boy, this is like so different. He's so cutting edge. And I think it's probably the same thing, like you said, with Little Nas. It's like whenever something just just a little bit different comes out people just grab onto it because they just need something unique or something that's you know, kind of refreshing. Yeah, so absolutely. You can't eat the same thing all the time. Right, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, number two is Leona Lewis with Bleeding Love. So Leona Lewis, she won the British reality competition The X Factor in 2006 and then turned that into a successful career on the British charts, but she never was able to really duplicate that feat in America, although this song, Bleeding Love, uh, did uh, chart. It was her uh, only top 10 chart appearance at all. Like that was it in America. Uh, over in Britain, she kept uh, recording and releasing. Her last album was in 2015 though. So I don't think she's ever gonna hit it in America again. I think that she's kind of done at this point. The thing about this song that's so weird to me is the lyrics. I'm just gonna read you the lyrics and you can hear them in the background. My heart's crippled by the vein I keep on closing. You cut me open and I keep bleeding, keep, keep bleeding love. That doesn't sound like a pop hit to me. No, no I, I remember I was working in the kitchen at the time and we would play the pop station um, in Portland, Maine. And this song was just in heavy rotation. It was like almost like every, every hour, every other hour that it would be on. Um, and yeah, so it's one of those things where like, because it's on so much, you, you know, I start to pick up the lyrics. I start to kind of hear. And, and I remember, you know, like a few of us in the kitchen were like, what is this song about like like this is just you know it always kind of reminds me of um was it jane child who had that song um what was it i don't want to fall in love or something mm-hmm. like in the late 80s where she's like you know love cuts like a knife but you make the knife feel good or something like, like you know, <laughs> hearing that line and be like that's kind of weird you know and and this is kind of like the same thing where yeah you're just like that those are some interesting lyrics yeah she sings it very beautifully but when you break the words down you're like wait what <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> At number three, uh, we had No Air by Jordan Sparks and Chris Brown, which makes for another example of a problematic partnership here on the top of the charts. Very uh, much a thing in the late 90s, it feels like, uh, where we were seeing, uh, or the late 2000s actually in this case, um, a lot of guys who uh, proved themselves to be a problem, like R. Kelly. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, this is, I actually like this song. I think this song is really melodic. And Sparks is a really great singer. Um, for me, this song really works, and it's definitely not because of Chris Brown, because I could care less that he's here. Right. Yeah, Chris Brown. I I, I never quite understood Chris Brown, like the, the success that he. Cause I, I, you know, a lot of his songs just like there was nothing really special about them. And mm-hmm. the like, same thing with this one here, right? You're like George Sparks. I remember her being on um on uh, American Idol. Um, I think her, her dad was Philip B. Sparks. Um, oh. Played in the NFL. Um, I think he played for the Giants. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, yeah, I think that was the thing. I, I think Chris Brown. I, I remember he did a cover of um, "This Christmas" um, and um, mm. uh, you know the uh, the Donny Hathaway, um, and it's just it's horrible, right? I mean, <laughs> so I mean, Donny Hathaway, of course, is just absolutely you know he's you know, one of the, the greatest soul singers ever. So yes, mm. anybody who's trying to do, uh, but it just it was just and I it just I don't remember I never quite got it. And then of course when all the you know stuff with him you know uh, you know the the domestic abuse with Brianna came out it made no sense to me i think there's there's this idea of this whole concept of 
you know, cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, if anybody would have been canceled, you'd think like like Chris Brown would have been canceled. But no, no, I mean, he was doing duets with Mariah Carey. You know, you go on Xfinity and they're like, oh, you know, check out the new song by Chris Brown. You know, when, when you when your screensaver goes up or you're checking the on demand stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it was it was really weird. It was it, it, I think there was a, something I don't know, like maybe there wasn't quite the same kind of idea of cancel culture in the late 2000s that we think of now. But yeah. it just seemed like. Everybody was like, oh, Chris Brown, horrible, horrible, horrible. And then, you know, a, a year later, okay, let's let him put out new music. <laughs> yeah, he dances well, so, you know. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, let's jump over to TV charts, uh, which was pretty dull at this point. Um, you know, American Idol took over the top two slots, and that was followed by Hell's Kitchen and Dancing with the Stars taking spots six and ten. Um the rest of the time, top 10 were predictable scripted favorites. You had things like Desperate Housewives, uh, Grey's Anatomy, House, CSI, Two and a Half Men, and Lost. Grey's is still amazingly on the air to this day, which is <laughs> stunning. Um, but surprisingly, we really haven't seen reboots of the other shows on that list, uh, with the exception of CSI, which now has come back as CSI Vegas. Uh, were you a CSI fan? Not really. Um, I, you know, CSI was one of those shows where it would be like, because it was ubiquitous after a certain point mm-hmm. that it would, my, I might just catch an episode here or there. Um, but yeah, th- those drums, I mean, Law and Order, I think I did more than any of them just because that was one that was such a staple, especially, you know, in the 90s into the 2000s. I think that was probably the one out of those sort of formula, you know, those dramas that had the, the drama franchises. That was probably the one I did the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I will not lie. I, my wife and I watch CSI a lot. Uh, actually, my wife on our the night before our wedding, she binge watched like three seasons of CSI because she couldn't <laughs> sleep. Uh, so we're, we're kind of ex- we haven't watched the, the new one yet. The first episode came out this week and we haven't watched it yet. Uh, but because of our schedules, but um, I'm, I'm, I enjoyed the smart mysteries of it. I mean, it wasn't exactly high, high class writing or anything like that, but um, it always worked. It always came together neatly and they had some really good actors on the show. So especially like Ted Danson and, and uh, you know, um, William Peterson. So um, I'll check it out and see how it is. I, I wasn't clamoring for more CSI. <laughs> I thought they had a good run three, uh, like I think four different series they had. Um, but Hey, if it, if it's good, uh, I'm more, I'm more than happy to watch good TV. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I am definitely a big William Peterson fan myself. So I, that was one, that was what drew me into to CSI when it first came out was seeing that he was on the show. So I think those early seasons, I did watch more of it. And then I think it might've, maybe it was the saturation point. I'm not sure, but I think that was, yeah, there, there's a certain point where I guess maybe there's too much, maybe when Caruso came out with the Miami one, maybe that mm-hmm. was, you know, cause I always just got a kick out of how he'd put his sunglasses on at the end of every season. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Over in the box office, the uh, number one film was the debut of the Tina Fey, uh, Tina, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler comedy, Baby Mama, which I own on DVD, but I've never watched. Uh, have you ever watched it? No, I've never seen it. I, mean, I remember the commercials for it. Like they were everywhere. So anytime you watch TV, it was just Baby Mama commercials. I remember that part, but I, I know I never ended up seeing it. I, I watched Sisters, which was good with the two of them as well. Um, so I think I'll, eventually I have to get around to watching Baby Mama. I mean, eventually I have to get around to watching all my movies. Uh, one day, hopefully I'm retired. I can just sit and watch movie after movie and, and yeah. waste away into oblivion. <laughs> yeah, it's always funny. And I don't want to like like cast dispersions on anybody who who really feels like if they retired, they would have nothing to do and they need to have a job or something. But every time people say that for me, I'm just like, no, if I didn't have to work, I would be the happiest person. Like I have plenty of things that I can find to do. 
then movies yeah, I, would be one of them. I could watch, I could binge watch movies all day. I mean, that that would not be the worst thing in the world for me if I was independently wealthy and could do that. Yeah, I don't understand people who are like, well, I need to keep working. No, no, no. <laughs> right now. <laughs> I enjoy a leisure life. Yes, exactly. Uh, so it was a big weekend for comedy, it seems, on the box office. The number two film was Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay, another film I've never watched. Um, and number three was the second week of Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Um, so I'm trying to think, I don't think, it's been a long time since we've had three comedies lead the box office. I don't, I, in fact, this might actually be the last time it happened in 2008, because you don't see comedies make money like, like that anymore. Yeah, right, because I think the last time we were on um, uh, Dark Knight came out, mm-hmm. went that one, and I think the Dark Knight and then Iron Man kind of yeah. spell the end of really anything that is, I think rom-coms held out. And, and 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 there were some comedies. Was it was it the, the Sherlock Holmes one? I think was like kind of like the last gasp where that one didn't really do well in the. Oh theater. yeah, uh, Holmes and Watson. Holmes and Watson, right? With um, yeah, yeah with, with Will Ferrell. I think people were ex- hoping that that one would be the one that could maybe save the comedy in the in the in um the theater. But yeah, now it's like right. We we you know we expect comedies to be released on Netflix and Amazon, and you know Adam Sandler has yeah. it with Netflix, I think, and that's kind of you know how how those movies are released now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fourth, we had the Jackie Chan Jet Li action film, The Forbidden Kingdom. Have you ever seen that? No, and I, I'm a big fan of both of them. Um, I remember when that one was being advertised in the theater. Um, and um, yeah, I, I didn't realize it, it, it did that well, actually. Yeah, I know. And, um, no, I haven't seen it. And if you ask me what a Jackie Chan Jet Li film called The Forbidden Kingdom was about, I could not have given you the description of this movie. A discovery made by a kung fu obsessed American teen sends him on an adventure to China, where he joins up with a band of martial arts warriors in order to free the imprisoned Monkey King. An American teen is the star of this film with Jackie Chan and Jet Li. I never would have guessed. I thought it was another, you know, uh, a hidden dragon. You know, um, what, what was the name of that movie? Oh, Crouching Tiger. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, uh, I, but no, it's a, it's a you know a, a mainstream action film, and I was shocked at that. <laughs> I don't remember being advertised like that either. I think it was no. being advertised as like a crouching tiger hidden dragon. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that was followed by Nim's Island, um, the remake of Prom Night, which I didn't remember they made a remake of Prom Night. Uh, the fun heist film 21, which was good, but unfortunately it's Kevin Spacey, so people don't watch it anymore. And 88 Minutes, which was not great. At number nine, though, was a sneak preview of Iron Man, which earned $3 million in 2,500 theaters a week before we kick off the massive MCU. So, I mean, the idea that this is like right now, this is the precipice of the changing of the box office. Uh, that's why we have those three comedies up top, Iron Man down at the bottom of the top 10, and then soon it would all change. Yeah, it, it is amazing because I think, you know, I remember when they started sort of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and at the time thinking like, oh, this is great. They're actually putting the characters together. Because I remember when I grew up reading comics, it was always cool that like, oh, this issue of Daredevil's got Spider-Man in it, you know, and mm-hmm. that kind of, it's like they all kind of were supposed to be mingling together. And then I didn't realize I would get to this point where I'm like, no, this is this is all too much. This is, the, you know, um, <laughs> that, you know, that like I want my 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 movie you know industry back or you know the, mm. the one that i you know that, that yeah we can see in 2008 was something different that it's just completely unrecognizable now only you know 13 years later yeah and uh, i think another hint of that happening was the at the number 10 spot which was the disappointing debut of a film starring hugh jackman and ewan mcgregor both huge names the drama deception which i don't think anybody remembers even coming out it made only three million dollars 
coming out in 2000 theaters. So, I mean, there you go right there, an adult drama and nobody wants to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. And you think like a movie like that 10 years before, you know, maybe in 1998, 99, not only would it probably have made its money back in the theater, but it would have had like this long career on TNT as like a new drama that gets, you know, heavy rotation on a weekend with like U.S. Marshals or whatever else. Um, And instead, you're right. It just sort of disappeared and nobody really remembers it. Absolutely. So we're going to take a little break and then we'll be right back to talk about Columbus Day. Welcome back to KilmerCast. Let's get into this film. So the writing director of Columbus Day is Charles Burmeister. Uh, the script was apparently uh, in the top 30 of the American Academy of Motion Pictures Nickel Screenwriting Fellowship. That's an extremely prestigious uh, competition. The fact that this script, this movie was in the top 30 is mind-blowing, but we'll get into why uh, it actually does make sense uh, a little later. Burmeister uh, he made a few shorts that had some acclaim and then made his debut with Columbus Day in 2008. And since then, he's only made one other film, uh, the poorly reviewed Mercury Plane, starring Scott Eastwood, which came out in 2016. Have you ever seen that? Mm-mm. I, I think yeah. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, I don't think most people have. He's currently teaching at UNLV and supposedly creating an original series with Gary Oldman for uh, Sony called The Butcher, but I can't find a lot of details on that. But hey, you know, I'm sure you know people make one thing and then disappear for a while, as long as he's still active. And obviously he's teaching, which is great, you know, spread, spread the wealth and, and show others how to get it done. The thing I thought was interesting about this movie as we got started was the fact that there's a t- uh, slate at the beginning for Kilmer Films, which I've never seen before, and I can't find any evidence that there's another Kilmer Films production out there. The fact that Kilmer believes in this enough to to create his own production company, it seems, to put some money into this film is kind of stunning. I mean, at this point, uh, Kilmer wasn't exactly rolling high on the hog, and yet he believed enough in Columbus Day to to fund it, which is, is, it just doesn't, I don't understand why. Yeah, I, I think I had missed that the first time I saw this. Because um, I saw it way back when it when it came out, like around that time it came out. And I think I must have missed that. Or maybe I saw it and I just sort of took it for granted. Because a lot of times with these direct-to-video things that um, usually, you know, the big star who, who was a big star who's now in the film will have a, a piece of the production. Because a big part of it is like part of the them wanting to be involved is that they want a lot of creative control over it. Um, so it didn't maybe it didn't surprise me at that time. But seeing it now, I was like... That's interesting because yeah, and like, and I was I was interested to hear if there were more Kilmer films, but yeah, you, if there, there apparently there weren't any. No, no, and it makes sense after you watch Columbus Day. <laughs> oh, uh, by the way, I should note that we are recording this just days before Indigenous Peoples Day, so perfect timing to cover Columbus Day. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's interesting because it, my my company um, that I work for they go by the uh, the California model, where mm-hmm. instead of um, um, giving people the day off um, for for indigenous people's day or you know um, no longer columbus day they do the, the day after thanksgiving which hmm. on the one hand it means you go through a longer stretch because you do you know essentially labor day until thanksgiving week there's no day off in there but on the other hand i mean that day is a much better for me anyway i think the idea of having to work i mean i, I always feel you know i used to work um, in, in kitchens and like that. So I, I feel a lot of sympathy for retail workers, bank yes. workers who have to work. So that, for me, I think that should be the national holiday is, is the, um, the day after Thanksgiving because it just makes more sense. Yeah, four-day weekend. That's nice. 
<laughs> exactly. I appreciate it with, with, with you know. So I it, and I didn't realize why they did it, and then I looked it up online and found out that got, I guess California got rid of the Columbus Day holiday altogether, mm. and they replaced it with the day after Thanksgiving. I think that's what it was. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so this movie starts out with Kilmer chasing down a guy named Leonard, who is played by uh, an off-brand Joe Latrullio. Um, and Kilmer shoots him and takes this case that he's carrying. Um, so this is really the the key to the story, is this case that he has. And they try to play it like it's a Pulp Fiction-ish kind of thing, where what's in the case? Uh, the problem is, I don't know if I ever cared what was in the case. <laughs> Did you? No, and they also didn't do like the whole MacGuffin thing where the case doesn't really change hands either. It's no. he just it's just something that he's carrying with him. Um, but yeah, it's not like there's any intrigue in 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 terms of like, you know, oh, I've got to get the case back. Who's got the case? None of that really happened. So yeah, I didn't really care either. It didn't it didn't seem like it mattered for the plot. No, uh, and as he's trying to get away with it, uh, three guys jump him. So we immediately have action. This film jumps into action immediately. And the three guys put a bag on Kilmer's head, which I was like, why? And then I realized, oh, wait, they're just hiding the fact that that's not Kilmer. <laughs> so it's obvious that, you know, they're just like, hey, we can get away with it, a stunt scene without Kilmer in it by just covering up with a bag. Because who would put a bag on the guy's head? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, but after a brief skirmish, Johnny, that's who, Kilmer's character, he uh, kills these guys and gets away. So that's the setup. That's that's, I guess, really our inciting incidents for this whole film. And it sets up what I like to call Los Angeles Park, the movie, <laughs> because this movie almost entirely takes place in a park involving a phone booth, which sure keeps the budget down. But boy, is it a very si simple, plain one place film. And it doesn't it lacks excitement because of that. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a time where I went to visit my friends in Bangor, Maine, and uh, my bus got in early while they were still working. So I had like a whole day to, to kill. Mm -hmm. And really, there wasn't much to do in Bangor. Um, so I hung out in a park for uh, you know a few hours. And that's kind of what it felt like. And of course, I, I ended up falling asleep on a bench and some really odd guy like woke me up and I was like, oh, boy, I got to get out of here. And, you know, um, but that was kind of what it felt like was somebody that needed that had like, you know, was couldn't go anywhere, right? Didn't have a place to go. So they were just trying to kill time at the park. And I do feel like from a plot device standpoint, it it's hard because anything that kind of reminds you of things where you're just like, you want time to go quicker mm. um, doesn't help, I think, from a movie device. Yeah. And this movie loves padding because there are many shots of him just walking or running or just shots of the park, just camera moving around, looking at the park. Uh, I mean, there are parts where nothing happens. I mean, it's, it's literally just scenic shots of this park. Yeah. And I feel like even that could have been better. I mean, every once in a while you see a duck or something like that, like maybe they had more animals and, and yeah. And then like, they would try to like create a sense of intrigue by having like, Oh, there's sort of like, they would, I think they, they wanted to, but didn't really flesh out like maybe like storylines between the other people at the park. There, there was a couple that I think like, there, the, the woman's reading a book and the husband comes over and then, or the boyfriend or whatever, and then they, they're fighting later. But they're like so, like, not, they're, they're, they're so ancillary that it doesn't really even add that, that element to it. And it, like you said, it just ends up being padding. Yeah. And so the core of the film is Kilmer making phone calls. He has a cell phone. And so he makes some phone calls on his cell phone and other calls he makes at this phone booth. Uh, which involves abusing this businessman who's in the park as well, who he's continuously throwing out of the phone booth in order to make phone calls. Now, so he just got this case. He's, we find out that it was stolen because uh, eventually this film, 
like I said before, um, it wants to be Pulp Fiction with a briefcase, but it also wants to be Pulp Fiction through the nonlinear storytelling because it keeps cutting all over the place um, to different storylines and and telling what happened with uh, this case and why it's there and who it's from. And so the thing is, Johnny has to keep a low profile because he's got a lot of people after him. And yet he keeps throwing this guy out of his phone booth <laughs> I'm like, you're going to cause trouble if you do this. He's going to call the cops. <laughs> you keep throwing him out of the phone booth. Why are you doing this? There's a lot of logic issues here. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, also, not only does he throw the guy out of the phone booth, but also he he ends up setting the guy up when there's some baddies coming for him to get the case. He kind of makes them think that this guy is the, is is him so yeah. that they like shake him down and take his bag away from him so this poor guy kind of he puts this guy <laughs> through the ringer and um yeah and i think there was a, a lot of stuff like that with his character where i think they wanted this idea of val kilmer's character being like a guy who is is not always good but maybe he wants some kind of redemption um but the not always good made it hard to you know i mean yes because he was val kilmer and he did the part well i, I did want him to you know to to make it out okay in the end but there is kind of also a sense of like this guy's doing a lot of bad stuff like he's not he's not the greatest guy ever no no not at all and, and we realize that right away because his first contact that he makes is manny a guy who when he calls is handcuffed to a section of fencing which i mean i, I will admit intriguing why is he handcuffed to this fencing i, I mean i'm down for that i want to know uh and we are shown eventually through these flashbacks that he got handcuffed to the fence because he was working with Johnny on a robbery and got caught by the cops. But I don't remember an explanation of how he got the fence off the building. No, no, it's just suddenly he's got this grate with him and they don't really show. Like, I mean, maybe there's a deleted scene where they, they had a skill saw or something. They were like a bed saw. And it's a legitimate wrought iron fencing. And it, like, you can't just pull it off a building. It's a security gate. Well, and I was thinking too, like if you could, if you could just pull the fencing off, why not just pull it off at a point where you could just slip the handcuffs out? Yeah. Like, why you slip it? Why you're pulling it off where, where, where you've got to carry it with you? Yeah, because he does at several points carry this fence that he's, he's handcuffed to, which again, I, I'm interested because it's an interesting visual and and something I haven't really seen. But you got to make it make it make sense, and they do not make it make sense. And part of the problem is that Manny doesn't really have a meaning in this movie. There's no point to him being here. The only thing he does is two things. One, he allows Johnny to talk about how their fathers had no money, so now they're going to be rich. So you get some bit of motivation as to like what they're looking at here. They're the people who had no money and now ha want money. He also uh, you create some tension because Manny gets whacked uh, because there are these criminals who are looking to get to Johnny and they get to Manny first. And that's really all Manny's good for is to create that tension and reveal that they need they want this money because they grew up poor. And so, I mean, again, you starting off with this guy and then he's a meaningless character. Like you said before, MacGuffin, he's a human MacGuffin right here. Right, yeah. And the thing is, you know, he's played by Richard Edson, who's been in like some of like the greatest, you know, I mean, he's been in some really fantastic movies, you know, Strangers in Paradise, uh, Do the Right Thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, classic, iconic scene in, in Ferris yeah. Bueller's Day Off. He's a guy that you're going to recognize. Yeah, and here he is, handcuffed to a grate, and then you know dies early in the film. I, I always wonder sometimes with some of these actors. Like, I mean, I guess in his case, I, I have a, a sense that he's like a professional. And he's just like, you know, I'm, I, I got to do what I got to do to make the money. Mm -hmm. But um, but <laughs> that's also be a part where it's like I'm in a movie with Val Kilmer here, and um, you know, how how did this happen? You know, like this is this is not Jim Jarmusch at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also on Johnny's call list is his girlfriend Cheryl. Uh, wow, Cheryl. So. 
he calls her with the news that he's pulled off this massive heist that's going to set them up for life. Her reaction could not be more emotionless. I don't understand what her character motivation is in here. I don't know if it's an issue with the actor actress's performance. Her name is Ivana Milesevich. I think it's how you say it. Um, or the way it was written, but she comes off as remarkably bored for somebody involved, intimately involved in a major crime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd think that like, you know, if 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 the idea was that they knew she knew this heist was coming, she knew that they were doing this, like the phone call should be like, oh, I, I'm waiting to hear from you, you know, as opposed to like, you woke me up. I'm tired. I can't, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. she has no emotion. Like it's just purely flat. And it really drags things down because she's, we were supposed to believe that this is like something, you know, that she loves her because it's going to become a part, key part of this movie, whether she, he loves her or loves uh, another one we'll talk about. Um, but how, how would you love her? She's nothing. She's meaningless. She, there's nothing. She's giving him nothing in this movie. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe he's, he's, he's older and she's younger and, and, and prettier. And maybe I think in real life, I think she's a model. Um, um, sure. She's, she's gorgeous. Yeah. And so maybe that's what it is. <laughs> it's like, he's sort of rekindling his youth and, and <laughs> maybe that I, I, you know, I, I agree with you. It was, it, it was interesting. I mean, but, but one thing I will say from a, you know, the direct to video standpoint is that you get a lot of that kind of thing in direct to video movies. Mm. Just like how pretty is the woman, and especially a lot of the ones. And this one was shot, of course, in LA. And you know, again, this woman was a model um, who you know was kind of famous, I think, beyond this. But a lot of times in Eastern Europe, it's just like let's get the prettiest woman. You know, is, is her English good enough to do the scenes? And yeah, and 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 they just roll with it. So for a movie that was supposed to, you know, Val Kilmer's putting his money behind and all of that, for to have this sort of like, you know, kind of cliche DTV device in it. Um, it kind of really sold it as a DTV movie to me, as opposed to something that was supposed to be maybe, you know, bigger than that. Mm. You know, eventually she gets drawn into the police investigation of Johnny and, uh, which is also ridiculous because she tries to keep him on the phone and they end up getting a big fight. It's, it's, it's somewhat entertaining, but right. honestly, if she wasn't in this movie, do you think it would have been at all different? No. No, because the only thing that she's there for, right, is to the police, but you can get police involved in any number of ways. You know, yeah. the, the police, you know, they you, you could have, you know, there could have been a guy in the park who was an undercover cop who had been tracking the situation who was there. You know, it could have been somebody who was tapping the other criminals' phones. You know, it, there were all no, numerous ways you get the police involved. So that seemed to be like the only thing that she was there for was to get. And I guess maybe to kind of juxtapose her with the the other woman and and make it seem like he's you know he's he's settling down or something i don't know but you're right like we, we could have done without it yeah i think they could have combined her role with manny's role and then have the police with manny that would have been a given manny more screen time which would have been appreciated and b i think he would have been fun with the police <laughs> Yeah, well, because he was, he had that one scene with the police officer um, at the very beginning where we find out how he's handcuffed to the grate. Yeah. Um, and that was a really good scene. And yeah, I mean, he's capable of doing that kind of thing. And I think especially with the kind of with the actors that they had playing the police officers who were just kind of your standard stuff shirt, you know, uh, uh, plainclothes officers. Yeah, he could have kind of, you know, they, they could have worked out, you know, worked with him. I mean, he would have probably elevated them and made them seem even better. Yeah, and I could buy if they use her for some sort of TNA angle. And I, I, I do, I know they they have, like, they begin to have phone sex in the park, which is bizarre. Um, <laughs> but there's not enough, there's not like there's a, a TNA payoff there. Right. It's just like, it's a moment and, you know, and then immediately it ends. So 
if you're going to have her character there and she's not going to be purely there for some gratuitous p- purpose, then really just get rid of her. Yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe it was they, they wanted her name, which I think at the time she had a name, um, you know, as, as a model. Um, I, maybe that's what it was. I, I don't, you know, it, you're right. It was one of those things where I think maybe it, it looked better on paper mm-hmm. than, than when, when it actually was executed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> part of the problem with having her as one of the choices is the fact the other choice is Mark, Her- Mark Helgenberger, who, bringing back before from CSI, she was on CSI for many years a great actress and you know she plays alice who is johnny's ex and you know she was always so good on csi so i was really happy to see her here rewarded with what had to be the easiest gig of her career (laughs) she spends most of this movie seated behind a desk answering phone calls yeah yeah it's what we always joke about with uh, eric roberts with his what we call a sit-down role um Mm -hmm. and, and in her case i guess it's a little bit beyond that because it's that she actually had three sets that she oh, was yeah. working from. So so that was a little bit beyond like the usual, like Eric Roberts or, or um, you know, I, yeah, he's probably the, the biggest one who just shows up, sits behind a desk and answers phone calls and, and they scatter it throughout the film to make it seem like he's really in it when he just did one day of shooting. Um, yeah, at is, least, you know, she was a lot. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I, I was, I agree with you. And, and the other thing too, that, that kind of boggled my mind about her job was she was, she's working in what looks like a very high end office. Mm. Um, but yet she tells him that she's making only a dollar over minimum wage, which I don't think an office that's that high end would be paying their staff that little because they would just lose them all the time. And, yeah. you know, a place like that would want to keep staff on because, you know, they, they, they need them to be, you know, if, they, if you have a competent staff member, you know, which I mean, maybe the problem with her, we don't know how often Johnny calls her at work, but that could be the problem with why, you know, they weren't paying her that much is that she, you know, was constantly taking phone calls from her ex. Yeah. I mean, I love that, you know, she's sitting, it looks like a very nice office space and then when she's having lunch it's in a school cafeteria essentially right. yes. yeah. so yeah i wonder sometimes i think sometimes with the, with the filmmakers um you know a lot of times they kind of just grow up in in filmmaking so like they never really get like kind of an office job or you know they don't have any like, kind of that kind of work experience it's almost like out of college they're selling scripts and so they have a concept of what the office is but don't really fully you know and i know from my own experience i i'm kind of the same I, I, this is kind of the first you know even though I, I work remotely it's kind of the first real kind of office job and i started to kind of understand how offices work a little bit better um but i think that sometimes we, you see that sometimes in movies and sometimes it's just a matter of you know th- these are the sets we have and so we've got to make the best with them but but there is sometimes a sense of like okay well she's only you know oh, oh a secretary would only make a dollar over minimum wage which isn't really true if it's a higher end office they would want to pay a little bit more to keep a really good secretary yeah handling the phone calls is an important you know role here uh but you know like you said most of the time she's just talking to kilmer she's and they're talking about the life they shared together and what she's doing now including uh a bad boyfriend or date you know i i don't i can't tell how often they've been together but ralph is uh apparently not the most charming person and kilmer really plays on that and he tries to get her to run away with him um, I mean, the real core of Alice is that she makes bad decisions. <laughs> that's that's really what we get from her is that she doesn't really make smart moves. Yeah. And one of the things is like he tells this big story about how their first date, he had like spent all his money to like clear out a, an Italian restaurant. And then she ended up not wanting Italian food. So they just went to get burgers. Hmm. And she's like, oh, but you, you know, you, 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 you did that. You, you, know, you set up that whole thing for me, even though we never went, you never told me about it. And it's like, 
this guy lies for a living. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, like what makes you just so ready to believe this story? Because how, how do you know it's true that he, you know, that he did this? I mean, I, for me watching the film, it's like, I don't know that he's telling the truth about this um, or he's just trying to sell her to get what he wants. Um, so you're right about that. Like her man, not necessarily making great decisions. Yeah. And there's no evidence that he ever had money, you know? So like to, to rent out a whole restaurant seems like, out of his reach because he's so focused on this one big score. Right. Uh, I don't, I don't see them having some rich life that they would have had, you know, that this is something he could have done. Yeah. I didn't understand too. They said that they met in college. Um, that would have been kind of an interesting thing to go into was like, was he attending the college? Did he drop out? Um, did he get a degree in something? And um, you know, maybe a business or something. And, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, what, what happened? I mean, did he pay off his student loans? That's how he did turned a life of crime i mean like we don't really get a sense of like how he goes from college student if, if he was in college they, they just kind of say that they met in college but how he goes from that to where he is now um none of that stuff is really explained yeah matt are you accusing this film of not making sense <laughs> right <laughs> i know that's a good point <laughs> well part of the reason why alice and uh, johnny still share a connection is the fact that they share a daughter who is alana who's played by ashley johnson and uh, most people probably if you're in generation x you know her as the youngest daughter on growing pains which is still weird when you see her all grown up uh, but she's carved out a really solid career for herself especially in voice work she's done a lot of voice work and she actually did the voice of ellie in last of us on uh, playstation so you know she's doing well and She's good here. She's 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 good in this role. Um, she's estranged from Johnny uh, because he abandoned them when she was little. And, you know, things get very emotional between Alana and Johnny uh, because she's she ha- is holding a lot of emotion over what he did. Admittedly, like, you know, some of the things sound a little weird, like I wish I was nine years old and you could take care of me. That's yeah, I, I'm not going to tell somebody how they should feel about being abandoned by their father. Just it, when she when you say it out loud like that, it feels odd. Yeah, I think it's more of like the film kind of just, you know, maybe the, the, the writer thing, you think it sounded good on paper mm. um, when they're, they're actually acted out. They, they kind of seem off. And I also the one thing, too, about that scene that was difficult for me was that we, we hit a plot point before it where like things are really getting set in motion with Johnny and this case and who's going to buy it and all of that stuff. So we want to just get there. And it seemed like that was like the worst place for that padding was to put it right there. So it's like, you know, it's supposed to be this really great moment. And like you said, she does a really great job with it. It's probably like, you know, so for her as an actress, this is a really great scene. Like you said, she's, she's probably been known for, you know, her career as the, the, the daughter on Growing Pains who went from like one to five in one season. Um, and, you know, this kind of like, you know, the, the curly red hair. And, but yeah, it, it, her scene, the problem with that is that like, I, 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 yes, I wanted to kind of be in that moment, but I also kind of wanted to just get it over with because I was like, we need to get this thing wrapped up. And, um, you know, there's big things happening and it, it felt like it wasn't the time for it. Are you saying this film has problems with pacing, Matt? <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> I know. Because this film has many problems with pacing, including the fact that at one point, Johnny tells uh, Johnny is told by uh, the guy who is after him that he has 15 minutes and then proceeds to take a duck paddle ride (laughs) on a lake, which I am positive takes more than 15 minutes to complete. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. This is like kind of like like 
like maybe like, like, like kind of next level like helicopter parenting like bringing sending a child out in the world and just giving them so much protection that that's the amount of padding that this film had it was like i i definitely felt very safe in this movie like i knew i wasn't going to get harmed by anything but by the same token yes it might like my brain was kind of like permanently velocitized whereas like when, when the movie was over i i was like trying to, you know, everything else felt like it was moving in really fast motion because i was so my brain was so used to going so slow yeah, like any deadbeat movie dad, Johnny really wants to get together to talk to to her. And in the end of the call, she tells him, if you don't show, it's over. Now, at the end of the movie, Johnny and Alice, they, when they get together, they talk about getting on a plane to Florida. I had to rewind because I couldn't remember where Alana lived. And I wasn't sure if they were actually going to see her. I, I mean, did you I mean, he explicitly tells her the plan 15 minutes before the end of the movie. And I still could not remember why they were going to Florida. It's, it, to me, it points to a real problem with engagement in this movie. Yeah, well, because it was like, I, I think when when most of the film is just him either in a phone booth on the phone or sitting on a bench on a cell phone, it's hard to dis- like sort all of it out. Like, who is he talking to? What is what are, what are they talking about? I mean, I didn't realize until that last scene that um that his you know that mark helgenberg's character was in la with him or they were both in in echo park or in in the area together i thought she was living down where the daughter was living that she was you know so i mean is she estranged from the daughter too like i didn't i didn't get that either like they didn't really explain like why the daughter went off to florida to begin with there's a lot of not explaining going on here yeah (laughs) including our friend Bobby J. Thompson, who is this child actor, who I, I, I mean, unfortunately, I thought that it was Kid President. Do you remember Kid President? Oh, yes. I because he has that same unbelievable, you know, precociousness. Um, he plays a kid named Antoine, and Antoine is a lot. <laughs> Antoine is so much of a character in this film. It's hard to appreciate it, the film being real like being set in a real world because he is a cartoon that that they dropped into this movie i mean he talks to johnny about being gay which i that came out of nowhere i was like what why did like where did that come from he complains about his family issues which, which apparently his mom is having a real tough time raising him he tries to steal a paddle boat uh, at one point which leads to johnny telling police that he's antoine's stepdad there's so much happening i mean johnny is this criminal trying again trying to stay low profile so he can get away with this crime and he keeps getting involved in this with this small child and at one point Antoine asks Johnny to check out his gun and then pulls it on Johnny yeah that one blew my mind because <laughs> that one it's like we established early on which again it's technically not Kilmer it's a, it's a stunt guy who's got a bag on his head but we, we get this sense that Val Kilmer is this guy who for the most part, kind of recognizes the surroundings, kind of picks up what's going on, um, you know, has a high attention to detail. Yet he lets a young child play with his gun and puts the the bullets just down anywhere that he could, you know. It, it was really weird that, you know, someone who, like, because I think anybody who's, who's got any kind of, like, training in that kind of thing, like, they're just, the, the, a weapon is, like, kind of, like, their focus like that's where everything is going to be and who you know how that weapon could be used to harm them mm-hmm. um you know it just you know the idea that he would just put that down and just they put the bullets down and let the, the, the child just grab it and load the gun and point it at him um was just yeah it, that, that part of it kind of blew and and you're right i mean i think bobby uh, j thompson does great with the part i like the way he played the part mm-hmm. but the part itself you're you're right and and again it, it added a level of of padding i think he, he was supposed to be a device to kind of like make maybe johnny think about you know what he's he's 
doing or, you know, make him want some kind of redemption or think about, you know, the, the bad choices that he's made. Um, I, I don't know, or, or just a device to pad the film out, um, you know, again, like, like everything else. Um, so it was like, he did a great job with the part, I thought, but you're right. Like, it just, it seems, it seems weird. Um, and I guess maybe the thing we'd say is maybe a child like that, maybe he's able to sense who's someone who would let him hang around with him all day. And so he, he keys in on Kilmer and just, you know, does that. But uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting device. Yeah. I mean, it definitely felt like, well, this guy's in the park. He's somebody to talk to. Uh, otherwise this movie's just going to be him on the phone for the entire time. And so we'll give him a little kid. And, you know, uh, and it's like, if anybody saw this older man hanging out with this little kid in the park like that, somebody's going to ask a question. <laughs> Right. And that was my first thought, too, when he, he there's like an older guy feeding the pigeons that he he gives money pigeon to man, right? pigeon man, and has him like look out for Antoine. The same thing. It just, you know, like the idea um, of just like, oh, you know, we're I'm going to, you know, this this old guy is just going to look out for this kid in the park and not seem weird. Right. Like it just. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of it is just um, <laughs> it, it was very interesting. My favorite part about that little angle where. uh Johnny gives Pigeon Man a bunch of money to hang out with Antoine is then later on when he sees Antoine running, he just grabs him. Like there's cops everywhere in the scene and he just grabs this older man, grabs this little child and like he's screaming and nobody says a word about it. (laughs) Yeah. This, this movie's insane. <laughs> yeah, I, that was my first thought when I saw that too. Was that I think it was supposed to be this like heartwarming thing where the guy's taking care of him. Yeah. But it, that that wasn't how I I saw. No. Again, it didn't come off that way. Again, maybe it looked better on the page because when you're seeing it in the film, it doesn't look that good. It's a kidnapping. <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and so this scene takes place at a parade. And so let's talk about this parade a little bit. I mean, I'm jumping all over the place, but this movie's insane. So why not? Right. <laughs> um, I get that this film is called Columbus Day. <laughs> and there's some discussion I played at the beginning of the movie between Johnny and his fence Max, who's played by uh, Wilmer Valmorama, who is actually, I, I thought, one of the better actors in the film. Uh, he does a really good job as Max uh, in this. And he has conversations, except for the fact that he doesn't know how to use a phone. I don't know if he caught that. Yes. He, at one point, he's talking into the speaker part of the phone and somehow having a conversation with Kilmer. I don't know how that worked. <laughs> it seems like if you were going to have like, you know, younger kids like Gen Z or whatever, like, you know, here, use a, uh, you know, one of those jokes that they would do where, you know, all these young kids, they don't know anything about technology and it shows them using the phone the wrong way. You know, and it's like, oh, those kids. Like, it was kind of like one of those things only, you know, will well, the Rama should know better, right? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So they do talk about him and Max talk about Colum- Christopher Columbus. And but if you're going to have the climax of this movie center around a Columbus Day parade, you might want to mention it once during the film. <laughs> this parade comes out of nowhere. I was l- literally stunned when suddenly he's in the middle of a parade. I was like, I totally forgot the fact that this movie is taking place on Columbus Day. And there is not a single mention or sight or sound of a parade at all for the length of this film until the very end. Well, even worse than that, right, is the very beginning of the film when um, Val Kilmer's character is questioning Bobby Thompson, saying, why aren't you in school? You know, and he's like, oh, it's a holiday today. And he's like, it's not a holiday today. If there's a holiday, there'd be parades and things like that. (laughs) I don't see any Santa Claus or whatever, but I don't you know, I don't see any parade. He actually says that I don't see any parades. Yeah. And and then you're right. Then you know, like there's suddenly there's a parade, and, and um, you, I mean, and I, I also feel like too, if you're spending all day in the park like that, which he's spending all day in the park, he would have picked up on the fact that there was a parade, and it could have been used as a plot device, like, 
oh, this could be, you know, oh, I see this parade forming here. This could be a, a, an escape possibility for me or something. Yeah, I mean, that's the craziest thing is that there's no setup to the parade. They're, they're not blocking streets. They're not bringing things in. Suddenly, he's in the middle of a full-fledged parade. Like, it's not even just starting. It's in the middle of the parade, and he's right there in the middle of it. And I was like, this is insane, the fact that they did not mention this once in the movie. Like, you could have had, you know, the cops who come see him like they come and see they come in uh the cops come and investigate him when he throws that guy out of the phone booth and says you know uh buddy you shouldn't hang around here we got the parade today you know we're trying to keep things moving you know like you could have dropped little things here and there all over the place to make this make sense there was no effort at all yeah i mean even if he just like goes he sees them you know setting up for the parade he just goes over there and it's like hey what's going on here today what's this about oh Columbus Day Parade. What? <laughs> Columbus Day? I didn't know that. You know, because I kind of get that part of it. I, I had a friend who pl played poker for a living, and he often wouldn't even know what day of the week it was because, you know, <laughs> it, you know, because like it, it would just be in there playing. And I remember on a Sunday, we were getting a bus somewhere and they didn't run, you know, somewhere in Connecticut where they didn't run buses for that municipality on a Sunday. And he's like, I didn't even realize it was Sunday. Um, so I get that part, like not knowing what a holiday, you know, a holiday like Columbus Day in particular. Like if you're someone who lives like Val Kilmer, you wouldn't know that. But again, like you said, the parade, I mean, that actually would have been a great device for him to key in on the fact that, oh, it actually is Columbus Day. It's like, you know, and then again, maybe he can use that as a device to, to get out as opposed to just being like, oh, there's a parade here and I'm going to, you know, escape through the parade. Yeah, because I have to really question one of the main plot points, I guess you could say, is uh, that the guy that he stole the case from wants to get it back and is going to give him money. And so they're going to meet up in the park to make the exchange of the money for the case. If you're a criminal and you want to stay out of the, the you know spotlight and you want to make this deal, do you do it at the park where the Columbus day parade is taking place? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And especially like I'm giving you this huge duffel bag full of money in the gazebo which, again, the other thing, too, that kind of was interesting was the idea that this parade is happening and that gazebo is not forming any kind of function or, or anything. And, um, yeah, I mean, the other thing that's kind of interesting when you talk about the parade is that the rest of the park just seems like a normal day at the park. Um, and it, Nobody it, it, knows. Right, exactly. But the fact that Bobby Thompson is there, there are no other kids there, despite the fact that it's a holiday. Yeah. The rest of the people are just adults. It just seems like a regular day at the park. <laughs> it's a film where they went – well, let's just call it Columbus Day. And then they just built everything else around that point. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right, because right, I guess it's supposed to be some device where the banks aren't open. Um, and, and that means he has to do the deal with this 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 one guy because he's the only guy, I guess, who has that kind of money laying around that he doesn't need to go to a bank for it, which um, that's interesting too. The idea that like, you know, a lot of these criminals are um, just putting money in the bank, just, just putting it in, you know, American bank accounts, just just having it sit there when usually it's laundered through other means. And um, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, I'm a, I'm a drug dealer. I just put a million dollars in my, and you know, go into the bank of America, just going to throw a million dollars in there. That'll do the trick. Oh, but now I can't take it out because it's a holiday. So I'm stuck. I'm sorry. Dang. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the whole thing builds up to this parade. Um, well, I mean, I shouldn't say that it doesn't build up. It just suddenly happens into a parade <laughs> where um, now there's a shootout in the park, which is, like, it's basically it feels like a LARPing because like you have these groups of about four guys each shooting at each other and it doesn't feel like the rest of the park really cares much about this <laughs> like, people are shooting at each other and there's people just still going about their business in the park yeah occasionally you see somebody run by but mo for the most part it's your average LA shooting day so you know um and now Johnny now has a police uniform so he slips into his police uniform so he can walk away 
but Johnny gets shot, uh, which I didn't expect. You know, I didn't expect to see that happen because I thought he was going to make a clean getaway. And <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, I don't want to speak ill of people's work. I know it's hard to do work, but the, visual effects person on this film really should think again or at least i hope they've learned from their experience because the blood in this film is some of the most fake blood i've ever seen in my life yeah it definitely i mean what was it was it um scream right where they they showed like the, the red corn syrup and mm-hmm. um you know like and it definitely had that look i mean it looked like maybe like what you would use for blood in like a black and white movie where nobody <laughs> can see the difference yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I agree with you it, it 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 definitely like you said yeah it, it 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 had the look of whatever fake blood is supposed to look like yeah this is halloween store fake blood not yeah. movie <laughs> fake blood and so he gets underneath a float he makes a distraction by throwing some of the money away which i'm like wow you know the money doesn't matter he just he's making enough money he can just throw it away and then eventually marge you know alice shows up and she's got the car and they jump in and they make their getaway and on the way on the way he he's got some money with some blood and he just tosses it out the window who cares <laughs> like just he's got so much of it he doesn't need to worry about this one pack of what looks like a ton of money um and so you know he she says to him you know are you okay because he got shot and he's like oh yeah yeah i'm fine and uh you know he's like the heart it's not the hardest part and she's like what's the hardest part what comes next what what does that mean it, i guess because they're, they're going to try to rekindle their relationship i guess and make it work um though to be honest like for somebody in her case who was like you know like i don't really like you or, you know i'm trying to move on or whatever like when she gets in the car with him and he's been shot and he's got like a pile of money <laughs> He is perfectly fine. She's like rubbing his head. She's yeah. like, you know, like, oh, we're, it's almost like they were a couple the whole time, um, which I thought was very interesting. Like I said, Alice makes bad choices. Right. Uh, I, to me, you know what the hard part ne- that comes next is trying to get on a plane with a gunshot wound. I, I was thinking the exact same thing. Like, how do you go through security? I mean, this movie was not made in 1999. And even in 1999, if you were before 9-11, you know, um, 99-2000, before security was tighter. They would not let just let you go through the metal detector with, a, you know, an open bleeding wound um, and a duffel bag full of cash. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. In, in the real McCoy, uh, which is the early '90s, uh, the end of the movie is um, Kim Basinger and uh, Val Kilmer getting on a plane with a duffel bag full of cash, and they get through security and no problem. And I, I was like, okay, pre 9/11, maybe, maybe you can just like somehow fake it or whatever. Post 9-11, no way. No No. way you're getting on board like this. Yeah. And first of all, where's he getting this? And he's gonna bleed out. I mean, he is bleeding heavily. Like they need to get taken care of. But he's like, no, let's just go right to the airport. Yeah, because they were trying to make it seem like the money had like blocked the gunshot wound so it wasn't so severe. But it's severe enough that every time he puts his hand near his near the wound, he has a handful of fake blood. Um, So so that's not something that just sort of any and the way he's acting, it sounds like it's a severe wound like he he's, you know, acting like somebody who's been, you know, has a a very sharp cut that's like bleeding and he's Mm -hmm. getting woozy from it. 
anytime you get shot in the abdomen, I mean, not that I've ever been shot, thankfully, uh, but you know, I am aware that anything in the abdomen area, there's a lot of vital organs and stuff in there and a lot of blood. And so you are in real danger when you get, I mean, that's why people shoot people in the stomach because there's a good chance you're going to, you know, make some real damage. Like Jack Ruby, you know, like they didn't go for the head. They went for the stomach. <laughs> like, and then, so like, that's, that's a real problem. And I don't think, I, I think this whole ending is just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that, that nobody really thought about any of the pieces of it. Um, of, yeah, getting on a flight with a, with a bullet wound. Um, and the thing is, the thing about all of that is it didn't need to happen. No. Like, there was no reason for him to have gotten shot there. Like, he, no. he didn't need to get shot. I guess there was a sense of, like, they wanted us to, like, think, like, oh, maybe he doesn't make it. Um, they could have done a variety of ways to make it so he doesn't make it. They could have been, like, a, a plainclothes cop who knocks on, on the window of Marge, Marge held, or, you know, Alice's car door when they're inside and says, you know, hey, is everybody okay here? We're, we're looking for somebody who looks like this. And it's how Bill Kilmer looked before, but not now. Or something, you know, whatever it is, there could be, like, some kind of moment that creates that same kind of tension where we don't have to sit there and go, like, how is he going to get on a plane? But you're right. The money is still an issue because where are you going to put um, what was it like a million and a half dollars that he got yeah. um mm -hmm. where are you going to put that because you can't put it in your suitcase because that's going to go through the x-ray you yeah. can't put it on your in your carry-on because that's going to go through the x-ray um i don't know if at that time they were using those those full scanners so maybe that's what it is is that you you put it like but, but they didn't show him with like a money belt or anything like that no. that you would just go you know so yeah i don't know um <laughs> i don't know how you deal with that i will say you know despite all the problems with this film kilmer's good in it yeah. I mean, he sells everything that's in this film because he can make he can make a conversation interesting. I mean, because, again, this movie is mostly a him talking on the phone. <laughs> and most people can't do that in a way that is going to be interesting to watch on t on screen. And he can. Yeah, yeah that was <laughs> one of the most interesting things to me was that as I'm watching it, I'm like rooting for his character or like I'm 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 kind of like drawn in by his character and um i think what it was was it seemed like every time he was doing something that was like drawing me in the movie would do something to make me kind of pull away again and mm. so it's almost like this this tug of war where it's like kilmer is bringing me in and then the movie you know just suddenly throws in a parade or a gunshot wound and i'm like okay why are we doing this or um <laughs> but, but you're right like he he and, and the interactions he has with bobby thompson in particular like they were you know really good like i i enjoyed their exchanges despite the fact that you know they're padding the movie out um and you know sometimes the exchanges were a little bit uh, difficult to believe he yeah. he was selling them for sure oh absolutely uh but the film didn't work for him and that's the biggest problem i think here is that um so kevin spacey is listed as a producer on this film because the film is a trigger street production and his involvement actually led to the film that we watched uh because he sold the completed movie to producer eli Saha samaha uh eli samaha uh he was involved in the Boondock Saints and Battlefield Earth and just a slew of other films. I mean, I know like those two films have a reputation, uh, but like legitimate films this guy's been involved in. But he also is involved in a lot of B-level action films. So once Samaha took charge of this film, he tried to change it into an action film because originally it was all about the conversations. So he actually recut the film. That's why it's all out of order and messed up. And he added new action scenes that were shot. Um, and unfortunately, Kilmer refused to make those scenes. So that's why we have the bag on the head 
And that's why in other scenes, you really don't see Kilmer in the action because it's a stunt double that they put in to play Kilmer's character. And so now there are two versions of this film, which I did not know. And I don't think we're ever going to see the other version. So there's a director's cut, which was um, you know done by the original director, Charles Burmeister. It was a quiet little character-based drama. Um, it was meant to be a film festival film, you know, like uh, about a father and daughter and, you know, why we make the decisions we make. And then Samaha made this action film, essentially, that he intended to release in Europe, except he then replaced the American version with the European version. And that's the only one that's available now is his chopped up, messed up version of this film, which is a real shame because the director and basically everybody involved in this film has totally disavowed it because it's not the film they made. That explains so much. Um, it explains everything, like from like who was involved. I mean, like Richard Edson, um, I could see him wanting to do a movie like this because it probably seems like a coffee and cigarettes type you exactly. know, situation. I, I can see why he would have gotten involved with it. I can see why Val Kilmer put his name as like a producer, you know, like Kilmer Films. Uh, and it also explains like a lot of like the scenes like like with, with the daughter Alana, where you're like, this kind of seems like it's coming out of nowhere and it's padding the film when in fact, no, it was supposed to supposed to be like a key element of the film it was supposed to like you know this was supposed to be a major piece it the, everything that that makes sense and it also kind of makes sense about the fact that like Val Kilmer's character really never does the kind of thing he you know that the, the fight scene with the bag on the head he never really does anything like that anywhere else in the movie um no. yeah it, it explains so much for sure yeah and it's a real shame I'd love to watch the original film um it'd be nice if Charles Burmeister had an opportunity to show it to the world because you have to wonder, you know, he did only one other film besides this at this point. What would his career have been like if people saw the original Columbus Day? Um, not that I think people really have a reputation on him based on this film, because as we'll look at next, I don't think a lot of people have seen this film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, from a direct to video standpoint, this is something I, I've talked with direct to video directors before. This is something that happens a lot to their movies. Um, so this is actually one of those things that I learned myself in reviewing these kinds of movies that and, and this was a case where I didn't know this backstory. So I think when I reviewed it, I may have you know made some, some you know comments about that kind of thing. And I guess that's the thing if you're the director, or if you're Val Kilmer, is that this is out there and people like me are watching it and saying these things. But director after director would tell me these kind of stories that like I made this movie. And then when it got to the, the distributor, they, they had a producer or whoever take, a, you know, edit and turn it into this. And it's not the movie that I wanted it to be. And yes, I, some people have told me, like, you shouldn't really believe that with directors because sometimes that's their, their excuse of uh, wanting to <laughs> like, make up for a bad movie. But like Cyborg is probably the best example because that's the one mm -hmm. where um, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Canon Films took it away from Albert Pion and changed it into something. And he finally was able to get the, uh, the old masters and release his version, which mm – -hmm. I don't know which one you'd say necessarily is better, but at least his version's out there. Yeah. Um, and um, the other thing that's kind of funny about that, a side note for Pion, was that he made another movie called Deceit, where he um, actually took the equipment that was used for the reshoots that, that Van Damme demanded, and at night filmed this other movie. So he could make another <laughs> movie, and he actually thanks Van Damme in the in the credits of it. So that's, I, that's kind of I love the idea of just an fu movie like that. But um, but yeah, I think. Um, now it kind of makes sense of like what we were seeing there, but it unfortunately this is what happens in the direct to video world is that somebody looks at it and says, we, we, we do much better on like the, the, the secondary market making it like this. Yeah. Well, we've had our say. Let's see what others have to say about this film. Come children, let's explore the kills and valleys. Kills and valleys, the best and worst reviews of this film. 
there's not a lot out there. <laughs> On Rotten Tomatoes, Columbus Day is the rare film that doesn't have a score, mainly because it only has two recognized reviews and one of them is no longer available online. <laughs> uh, David Nusser of Real Films saw little to praise. Although the stakes couldn't possibly be higher for Kilmer's laid back character, Burmeister proves unable to infuse Columbus Day with even a hint of suspense or tension, thus cementing the film's place as a disappointing misfire of not quite epic proportions. And now, you know, now that we know the story behind, or at least we think we know the story behind, who knows if it's true, but you know, it's out there. Um, it makes a lot of sense that this movie wasn't meant to be a, suspensual ten a suspenseful, tension-filled action film. It was supposed to be a little drama. And, you know, so it's hard to hold it against him now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I agree completely with that. I think, um, yeah, like if, if I had that knowledge, you know, because I, so I did it for my site back, I think in like an 08 or 09. Um, and so, yeah, if you go to IMDb, I think I'm one of the, the few critic reviews that they, they, they call us critic reviews, which is always kind of funny. This is whatever it is that they used to just grab them from the Internet and just, you know, post them on there. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's one of those things that I learned when I started doing the site was that, a lot of the movies that when what we get is not always, you know, and I think with, we always grew up with this idea of like, you know, a Scorsese or somebody who just, you know, this, these sort of director driven projects where it's like, this is their vision and they're putting their vision out on there. And, and you know, it's, it's the, the auteur who just makes exactly what they want to make when really that's almost seldom the case. Like it's usually like somebody takes it and remakes it into something else. In this case, something completely different. Absolutely. Uh, though even when pro reviews let us down, which in this case it does, we can usually find a wealth of opinion over on Amazon. But when it comes to Columbus Day, they've only given us 32 ratings, which is stunning. That's easily the lowest of any film we've covered on this show. Uh, basically, I just don't think people seen this movie. I think it's like one of those lost films that never really made an impact. Um, and of the 32 reviews, only 46% are five star, which again, very low for a Kilmer film. Yeah, I, when I so I think I got this on Netflix, and it was one of those things where I think um, maybe I had done another Kilmer film before. Um, I can't remember, but it was one of those things where it was like, oh, you know, because you know, I started my my site direct video, and it's like Kilmer seemed like he was going to be someone because at that period in the late two thousands, he was doing a lot of direct video stuff, and it seemed like he might be someone who makes it into our Hall of Fame because um, mm -hmm. he was going to be doing a bunch, and he he kind of just has like that that burst of it, and then he stops, I think, mm -hmm. um, in into the the twenty tens. But um, yeah, that was essentially for me. I was just looking for his direct video stuff, and it was like the idea of having a name like Val Kilmer and reviewing a movie might bring more people to my site. Um, but you're right. I guess, it, you know, not a lot of people have seen the movie. They probably didn't, you know, <laughs> that much. <laughs> this headline of this review thinks that it's being positive, but it's not. Um, <laughs> pay close attention or you will lose track of where we're going. <laughs> I like the shooting. I like the hidden passageway. I don't, hidden passageway. I don't know. Is he talking about the gazebo? He's talking about the gazebo. <laughs> I don't really know what is in the case, but he carries it all over the place and never turns loose of it. All the while, he's negotiating the exchange. He is on and off the phone with different women trying to get together with one or the other. That's the whole review. <laughs> <sighs> Thank you for another movie of Val. I love to just look at him. <laughs> I don't know if we can trust that review. Right. Yes. Did it say how many people found it helpful? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, here's one that's also not helpful. This is the story of a thief, kind of a Santa Claus, played well by DiCaprio, who befriends a small black boy in a park where he wants to exchange hot money for that which isn't, leaving the boy some of his loot. And that's the story of Columbus Day. 
Santa Claus? What? And DiCaprio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm always confusing Val Kilmer and Leonardo DiCaprio. It's so easy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, 1% of the reviews were one star. I've liked most of Val Kilmer's movies. This one, flashbacks, flash forwards, flash sideways, split screen. Was LSD part of the screenwriting process? <laughs> Uh, Val Kilmer, you should be ashamed of yourself. While most of the actors in these shameful offerings are unknowns, you, sir, have fans. I no longer number myself as one of those. I won't go on and then simply because you aren't worth my time. So we were, we were talking about cancel culture earlier with Chris Brown. This person canceled Val Kilmer over this movie. <laughs> it seems really harsh. Seriously. This was an awful movie. I kept hoping something, anything would happen, but apparently good script writers don't work on Columbus Day. I watched it for what felt like an eternity, but still nothing had happened. So I went and did something else. That's wow. that's pretty, pretty on on the nose. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this one has a twist ending. What an unwatchable pile of crap. Val Kilmer should be issuing an apology to everyone who had to suffer through even one minute of this nonsense. If you want to see a good Val Kilmer movie, get The Saint. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> Out of all of Val Kilmer's movies, they picked The Saint. That's a, that's a good Val Kilmer movie. Yeah. I mean, he was a thief in that one, too. So I guess there's there's that. But I guess, yeah. It's like the, uh, the related film section of this of this guy's mind. <laughs> yes. And he wears disguises, right? He kind of any kind of wears the disguise at the end of this. This is true. <laughs> so we have a decision to make. With or without Val. Do you think Val Kilmer makes or breaks this movie? He, he makes it. I don't know if this is the right way to say this, but he, he makes it something better than it was, it would be without him. Um, I think <laughs> Val Kilmer, I mean, I mean, I guess this could, this movie could have had just about anybody in it, but it makes it something a little bit better for me, the fact that he's in it. Mm. I mean, he makes things that are awful watchable, at least. <laughs> yeah. At least he's interesting to watch. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and this movie has a lot going against it, but it does have Val Kilmer, so... Um, yeah. I do not think I'll watch it again, though. <laughs> no. I mean, and also an invested Val Kilmer. I think that's probably the, the most important part. This is, is true. He's yeah. not sleepwalking through this film. He is <laughs> giving a performance. I, I don't know, you know, that there's anything else that he could have done to make this a better film. Yeah. Well, we have a game to play, and it is the return of DTV or Direct From Me. So um, this might be an easy one for you, Matt, because you are the DTV connoisseur. <laughs> But the way this works is I'm going to give you the name, name and synopsis of a film, and you're going to tell me if it's a real DTV title or one that I made up. Okay? <laughs> All right. So uh, I'm either, you're either going to blow through this with flying colors or you're going to have to give up your website. Right. You're right. I know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is Marley and Me, The Puppy Years. Marley is back, this time as a puppy. Now with a young boy by his side. Oh, and by the way, Marley can talk now. Oh, boy. <laughs> this feels like this could be a direct-to-video movie. Like, it feels exactly. Um, I'm, I'm going to say, yes, it's, it's a direct-to-video movie. You would be correct. It is a real direct-to-video movie. <laughs> so that you are one for one. Excellent job. <laughs> Number two, Funky Monkey. A boy genius teams up with a super talented chimpanzee and his caretaker, who's played by Matthew Modine, to take down an animal testing lab run by Gilbert Gottfried. In exchange, the scientist helps the boy win the girl of his dreams. 
this this also could be a directed video movie too. Um, I I've never heard of this one, but I'm I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say that you made this one up, but I it feels like it could be as well. It is <laughs> yes. a real movie. It is a real DTV movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Number three, supermodel. Paris Hilton stars as a rising fashion model who discovers a greater talent as a crime fighter when her latent powers are activated by the paparazzi's flashes. Her biggest challenge? Hiding her superheroics from her insecure boyfriend, played by Jason Biggs. I'm going to say, I'm going to say no, that this one wasn't made, but I, this would be a great one to watch. It is? Direct from me, not direct TV. Okay. <laughs> Because I kind of feel like I knew if Paris Hilton had done a direct-to-video movie, I, 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 I probably would have reviewed it for the site. <laughs> How about Three Chains of Gold? Prince stars in the story of an Egyptian princess whose father is killed by assassins seeking the legendary Three Chains of Gold. She sends for help from Prince, the real Prince, who has to kill the assassins who are all played by Prince. Kirstie Alley co-stars. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like this this was something Prince did, but I'm I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say it's not a. I I, I feel like I've heard of this though. I'm I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna go against my my initial one. I'm gonna say this was a movie. And you are correct. It is a legitimate movie where <laughs> Prince played all the roles of the assassins and himself. Yeah, I I thought I remembered hearing about that, and and there was a part of me that was like no, I can't. But I I I thought I remembered hearing about it. So fortunately, I I did have a, a good enough memory on that. I had to include the Kirstie Alley co-stars because that just tips it over to possibly yeah. not real. <laughs> exactly. 222 or 222. A tough and tumble team named Tracy played by Fariza Balk has a choice. Go to Juvie or join a ballet academy run by the toughest teacher ever played by Rita Moreno. Though she enjoys learning to dance, she's afraid to look soft to her friends. I thought there was a movie called 222 that came out, but I'm, I'm going to say no, that this was this was not real and you would be correct i made that one up next is on the beat after his music career flames out as a one-hit wonder jack blade played by mark mcgrath decided to try a new job joining the police academy a life of rock debauchery and a lack of real world skills has left him unprepared for the cop life though to the chagrin of his mentor played by christian slater i'm gonna i love the idea of this one too but i'm gonna say no that this one wasn't a real thing and you would be correct. It is not a real movie. I always feel like the, the, the end of one hit wonderdom came when Sugar Ray had a second hit. Like <laughs> the fact that Sugar Ray had a second hit, and they even called their second album 1459. I feel like there, there was never any one hit wonders after that. Like that's, that's it. <laughs> How about Airbud Spikes Back? Everyone's favorite sports playing golden retriever is back. And this time he's a volleyball playing hot dog who teams up with a talking parrot to fight a rash of mysterious crimes. Ooh, I, I I know there's a ton of Airbud Air direct-to-video movies out there, or maybe straight to, to Disney or whatever. I'm gonna say yes that this was was a real movie. And you would be correct. It is a real movie. The final one in the series. Okay. <laughs> I think I actually remember seeing a trailer for that in another movie. So, how about Ring Around the Collar? Stephen Weber plays a priest whose church struggles with attendance and sees the answer to keeping the lights on in the form of a religious-themed wrestling promotion headlined by wrestler Bill Goldberg, who is hiding his Jewish faith. Oh, boy. I mean, again, I love Stephen Weber. I would love the idea of this to be true. I want to say no, that this wasn't a real movie. And you are right. It is not a real movie. Yeah. You're killing it. 
<laughs> How about the nuttiest nutcracker? Jim Belushi and Phyllis Diller provide the voices of fruits and vegetables in this computer animated tale of a nutcracker army trying to get a star on the top of a Christmas tree by midnight in order to stop an army of rodents from destroying Christmas. I would say this one's real. This is a real movie. You are very secure in that answer. Yeah. And that's because you're correct. It is a real movie, which is insane. <laughs> Everything about that is nuts. So I have to confess, I was on another podcast recently as a, about uh, exploding helicopters. And there was a movie we did, a Jim Belushi movie. And um, we kind of dove into a bit on the career of Jim Belushi. And I actually <laughs> remember seeing that on his IMDb. Uh, I didn't know it had Phyllis Diller, but I remember seeing it listed there. So that one, I kind of, uh, I kind of, I don't know if I say cheated. I just, it was a couple of weeks ago. I'd seen it or a few weeks <laughs> that, ago. That's fine. And then Rock and Egg Roll. Ernie Reyes Jr. stars as the son of a Chinese food restaurant owner who rejects a future in the family business for a shot at musical stardom. Boy. I, I want to say that this was a real movie, too. Sorry, this is a fake movie. <laughs> okay. That was a really good one using Ernie Reyes Jr. there because he does a lot of direct-to-video stuff. So, um. Oh, that, that's it for this episode of KilmerCast. I'd like to thank you, Matt, for joining me to chat about this questionable use of our time. <laughs> Do you have anything you'd like to plug? So, uh, yeah, the, perfect. Yeah, so the, the, the website is um, dtvconnoisseur.blogspot.com. That's really where you can find pretty much everything. Um, my new novel, A Girl and a Gun, is available on Amazon, um, on Kindle, or by paperback. Um, it's probably easier to find through my author page, which is um, Matthew Poirier. Uh, Poirier is spelled P-O-I-R-I-E-R. -I -E um, um, or you can look up my other novel, Chad and Accounting, um, and maybe it'll be suggested. I discovered that the title, A Girl and a Gun, is not a good one for searching on Amazon. That, um, a whole bunch of other stuff comes up that is not related to my book and it never makes it in the search results. So, um, but yeah, that my new novel is available now. And then of course I'm on all social media. So uh, Twitter, um, Instagram, and, and Facebook. Excellent. In our next episode, we'll be returning to the new millennium with a sci-fi adventure, Red Planet. In the meanwhile, please email any thoughts, questions, or comments to KilmerCast at gmail.com and follow the show on Twitter at KilmerCast. For myself and my guest, Matt Poirier, thanks for listening and remember to keep it Kilmer. Hey!